May I be the first to say Happy Father's Day, fathers, or the second, or the third. Uh, Americans are expected to spend about $7.4 billion less on gifts and goodies for dads this Father's Day than they spent last month on moms for Mother's Day, (laughs) according to the National Retail Foundation. I don't know what that says. They expect that total spending for Father's Day will be $12.5 billion this year, compared to an estimated $19.9 billion last month for Mother's Day. It's interesting, the suggestions they give as to why there's a difference. One of the uh, reasons given is that it's harder to find, it's harder to buy a gift for your dad than for your mom. You think that's true? I think any tool will work. You know? And the prediction is that the average person will spend $113.80 today for fathers. $113.80. So are you average? That seems awfully high to me. Maybe my expectations are low. I actually saw some pretty neat gifts for less than $113. I was going to recommend some to my children, but didn't have time. You can buy a, uh, a slingshot with a base on it that sits on the desk. It's actually a working slingshot, you know, so you can shoot paper balls into the trash can or paper clips. I thought that was handy. All right. Today's a day we think of the importance of our fathers, the importance they've had in our lives. I trust you've had a good father. And if you didn't, I trust you had a good adopted father. You know, adopted fathers can do the same kinds of things that biological fathers can do. I was blessed with a good father who not only explained to me how to live, but he lived Jesus Christ before me and let me watch him. You think I'm starting to look more like him? (laughs) My father's the one that introduced the family to uh, McDonald's. This was shortly after McDonald's appeared in Washington, D.C. I think this is 1956 or 1957 when they had sold less than a million hamburgers. Okay? They appeared on Route 7 outside of Falls Church, Virginia, and we went there after after lunch, for lunch, on a Sunday afternoon. And that was my first experience with McDonald's. Hamburgers at that time were 12 cents. Okay? 12 cents. My dad continually patronized McDonald's all his life because they offered free coffee. He'd always go for the free coffee. My dad passed away to be with the Lord 17 years ago, but I can still see him memorizing Scripture. He memorized most of the New Testament, much of the Old Testament. I can still see him encouraging his kids and grandkids. You know, if one kid would come out with a verse of Scripture, he'd give him a quarter. How many kids memorized John 11.35, Jesus wept? Most of the time, that was worth a quarter, at least the first time. The family today is in trouble. We've lived with one definition of the family for 238 years in America. But what up to now has been considered a normal family with father, mother, and children has increasingly been viewed as one of several options, all of equal value. Andreas J. Kostenberger said, and I quote, The Judeo-Christian view of marriage and the family with its roots in the Hebrew scriptures has to a significant extent been replaced with a set of values that prizes human rights, self-fulfillment, pragmatic utility on an individual and social level. It was a little over two years ago that Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley signed a bill to legalize same-sex marriage. Under its new creative provisions, Same-sex couples were able to marry and call themselves a family 
beginning in January a year ago. That was really a stunning, radical change in life for Maryland and for America. We've seen the difficulties of single-parent families, and now we're going to promote single-parent times two families to encourage the homosexual agenda. What that means for us as fathers today is that our roles in family life are increasingly important. They're important not just to our children, not just to our wives, not just to our families, but they're important to define for our society what a family is. To define what it is that God has created to prepare children for the world they're going to live in. Some writers have suggested that the family is a bad institution because it usually lacks peace and harmony. To me, the family is such a great and needed institution precisely because it lacks peace and harmony. It's valuable because it contains so much variety. It's like a game board with a bunch of little kingdoms with different personalities and attitudes and skills attacking each other and defending themselves and creating and bringing in new strategies. What's all this that's happening? What is all this doing? These kids are learning in families how to live in the real world. Apart from the family, kids wouldn't grow up, except in size and age. Apart from the family, the world would be filled with children, adult children. And crucial in every family is the father. So I thought today I would like to take a few, a few thoughts out of this parable that we had last week, the parable of the prodigal son. And I'd like to talk about the father. I heard somewhere in the past that somebody gave a message one time on the prodigal father. There was some preacher somewhere that concluded it wasn't the sons that were the problem, it was the father who was the problem. But I've been searching for that sermon all week and I can't find it. I don't know where, who gave it, or where. But I'd like to talk about the father, because I think the father here is a picture of God. I think Jesus Christ placed himself as the father and is using this parable to talk to the Pharisees. You remember Luke chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, the Pharisees are criticizing him because they're they're grumbling because he's eating with sinners and IRS agents, and they don't like that. And so in this triple triple parable that he gives, he's talking about lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the lost son, and he's talking about the response. And in this last part of the parable, he's inviting Pharisees to come into the celebration because they're represented by the elder son. So I want to talk about the father. What can we learn about the father in this parable? I've got three, three statements. Number one, the father was actively engaged in his son's lives. He was actively engaged in his son's lives. I think father needs to be actively engaged in the life of the family. It's possibly a father and be physically there and not be actively engaged in the life of the family. It's possible for the father to deflect everything that comes in, you know, as he watches TV. Go ask your mother. Fight it out yourself, you know. This father, I believe, was actively engaged in his son's lives. How do I know he was actively engaged? Let me give you some ideas. Number one, his younger son insulted him. The younger son felt free to make an insulting request. Verse 12, I'm reading. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me, And he divided his property between them. We don't understand the insult in that request because we're in the West. But Ken Bailey, an author who lived 
in, in the Middle East for some time wrote this. I'm quoting from Ken Bailey. For over 15 years, I have been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India, from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. The answer has always been almost emphatically the same. Here's the way the conversation would go. I'm still quoting. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Answer, never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Answer, impossible. Question, if anyone did, what would happen? Answer, the father would beat him, of course. Question, why? Answer, this request means he wants his father to die. One Middle Eastern writer, Ibrahim Said, writes, I quote, the shepherd in his search for the sheep, the woman in her search for the coin, do not do anything out of the ordinary between what anyone in their place would do. But the actions of the father in the third story are unique, marvelous, divine actions which have not been done by any father in the past. Here's a father who has such good rapport with his son that the boy can tell his father that he wasn't dying soon enough. It's like he's saying, Dad, I would have felt more comfortable if you died a little earlier so I don't have to do this. But since you're still hanging on, would you mind stopping right now to calculate how much you owe me and pay me off? I'd like to get out of here. The fact that the father divides his inheritance suggests that he's not bent out of shape by this request. He could have said, absolutely not. You need to learn to be patient and wait till I die. I'm not dividing anything with you because I know what you'll do with it. You've never saved a nickel. All you think about is money, money, money. Don't you get your heart and life right? No, he didn't. Didn't do any of that. Didn't scold him. Didn't remind him of his faults. Didn't remind him of his bad attitude. Didn't try to prevent it. He split the inheritance between the two sons. I can tell this father is, is involved in his family because the elder son insulted him. The other end of the spectrum. The elder son likewise felt free to tell his father off. This is verse 20. In verse 28, he gets angry, won't come in. So in verse 29, the, in verse 28, the father goes out to entreat him. Notice the father goes out, doesn't send the mother out. Doesn't send a servant out. The father goes out to entreat an angry son. Okay? So you dads, you got angry sons? You, go talk to him. He goes out to entreat him, and here's what he gets in verse 29. I mentioned this last week, but here it is again. The, father, the son says, look. That's an attitude of disrespect. These many years I have served you. I've been a slave. And I never disobeyed your command. You've been blind to my righteousness. I've been a good boy. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You've been unfair. You don't really love me. But when this son of yours came, I had nothing to do with it. You didn't consult me about raising your son. You've done a poor job. Who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You didn't even spend time to evaluate whether his repentance is for real. I don't know that you know what you're doing. So here's an attitude toward the father that is blasphemous. And yet the father takes this. The father takes this because he understands that he's got two boys in his family and both of them are dead. The younger son's dead because he wants out. He thinks he owns the inheritance. Give me the inheritance I'm out of here. The elder son is dead too. He thinks he's earning the inheritance. And he thinks the father is an imbecile. Doesn't know what he's doing. But even knowing that, 
knowing that both of his sons were dead, did not bend him out of shape. He didn't think, oh, for crying out loud, I got pagans in my family. I'm raising rebels. I got to purge this out of them before they turn five. <laughs> you ever had that attitude, fathers? You know, you say to yourself, when in the world is this kid going to learn? You know? And you compare yourself. You compare your child with other children. You compare your family with other families. And they seem to have it together. They seem, the kids seem to be so much better. And you say, I think I failed. You know? I have a house full of pagan relatives. Pagan rebels. They're relatives, too. They're pagan. <laughs> and, and, and I have failed. You notice you don't have that with his, fa- with his father. He doesn't, he doesn't feel that way at all. Even though his sons are insulting him and demanding this and mistreating him. I notice also with his father that he wasn't passive and he wasn't absent. He was involved with his sons in big decisions in their lives. He wasn't passive or absent. These are old statistics like 10, even 15 years old. But to me, the statistics are unbelievable as to what happens to kids when fathers are not there. Absent fathers result in horrible things. Look at these numbers. 43% of U.S. children live without their father. 90% of homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 90%. 80% of rapists... Motivated with displaced anger comes from fatherless homes. 71% of pregnant teenagers lack a father. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 85% of children who exhibit behavioral disorders comes from fatherless homes. 90% of adolescent repeat arsonists live only with their mother. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. You read the statistics, and you realize the fact that we have an epidemic in this country. And the epidemic is not the economy. The epidemic is not immigration problems. The epidemic is what's going on inside families, inside homes. The epidemic is fathers aren't there. What these statistics say is the presence of a father in a home is extremely important in the life of a child. The presence of a father in a home is extremely important in the life of a child. A mother cannot do it alone. She needs the help of a father. So what happens in, these, in, in, in a family? What does a family do, father and mother, for their children? Well, what they do is they provide bridges for children to go over in order to arrive at maturity, at adulthood, at a functioning level where they can operate in society. Parents provide a bridge. Let me give you some bridges that they provide. They provide the bridge of motivation. Motivation. Children are motivated when they can see a purpose for living, when they can feel a sense of progress, feeling a parental approval, Someday they need to motivate themselves, and parents show them how. I used to say to my students at the Washington Bible College, you know, you're studying your Bible now because I'm forcing you to. You paid money to get some ball-headed guy to force you to study your Bible. How are you going to study your Bible when I'm not here giving you homework to do? What makes you do it? What makes you do anything in life? The motivation is learned from parents. The motivation is learned in a a family that is so beneficial in a child's life. Number two, the bridge to self-discipline. 
Parents erect fences. Fences are great in life because they say you can play in this area, but you can't go over there. And fences erect these bridges and bridges erect these fences. Parents erect these fences. I'm a little slow. This is my second time through. I'm, you know, getting my tang tangled. <laughs> Parents erect fences. And the benefit of these fences is it helps children in discipline. Because they need to erect their own fences in days to come. They need to have boundaries that say, I will not go there. I will not do that. I will do this. Where do they learn that? They learn that from parents. Third, parents supply the bridge to productive careers. You teach your child how to work, how to get things done. It starts, you know, in their bedroom. Starts with dishes. Starts with their clothes. Some of your children learn it faster than others. You know? Some of them, you're not sure they will ever learn it. But you're, you're teaching them to work and get things done. Jewish people held that a man who failed to teach his son the law and a trade raised him to be a fool and a thief. If you don't teach him what the law says, and if you don't teach him how to work with his hands in some sort of trade, you're raising a fool and a thief. One of the testimonies I love to hear about my kids or my grandkids is when their co-workers say they're good workers. They are faithful and put the time in and do work. To me, that's a great statement. Number four, the bridge to good memories. Children need a pool of memories. So they can say it as adults. Do you remember when we did this? Do you remember when we did that? It was a great time. To do that, children need our time, our experiences, more than our money. One of the funny things is that some of the, some of the best experiences our children remember are times when we didn't have any money. <laughs> they remember how cheap I was, <laughs> you know. We'd stop at 7-Eleven before we went to McDonald's because at 7-Eleven we'd buy a gallon of something. <laughs> Tea, apple juice, so on. So when we, went to, when we went to McDonald's, we didn't have to buy eight cups of Coke and pay two bucks for each cup, you know. Let's get on. Let's go on to number five. <laughs> the bridge. Parents are the bridge to God's will. Children who have never surrendered their wills to their parents will have great difficulty surrendering their wills to a teacher, to a policeman, to the government, to their boss, to God. At home, the parents, specifically the father, all help to develop the use of the word no. Yes. This. That's the bridge to God's word. That's the bridge to God's will. That's the bridge to listening and obeying what he has to say. So how do you do this as fathers? How do you actively partake in family life? You know, sometimes family life seems to have a shell around it. How do you crack a shell? Kids sometimes seem to have a shell around them. I have two suggestions. Number one, you ask questions. You ask questions. You actively participate in your children's life by asking questions. I think fathers need to be specialists in questions. Ask them what they did. Ask them what they learned. Ask them what their favorite one is. Ask them what they want to do. Ask them what they don't like. Ask them what they hate. Ask them what they love. Ask questions. That's the way you get into their lives. That's the way you start the dialogue. And then number two, I would encourage you to... Participate by steering them with what the Bible says. Tell them what the Bible says. This doesn't, mean, this doesn't mean you have to be an expert in the Bible. It means you say, tell them what you learned today. I learned today that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. So you're steering them by the Bible so they can 
understand the fact that there's something other than themselves that ought to guide their lives. So that's number one. The father was actively engaged in his son's life. Actively participated. Number two, the father was patiently engaged in his son's life. Patiently engaged. Meaning, he picked his fights. He didn't fight over everything. There were some things he skipped, as we've noticed already. So, I've got a couple questions here. Question number one. Why did he give out the inheritance to his sons? Why does a son come to him and say, you know, it would be better if you were dead. Could you split everything so I can get out of here? Why didn't he say to him, that's a wrong question. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to answer it. Wait till I die. I think the answer, part of the answer is that these sons were a lot older than we think. These weren't teenagers. You see that in verse 29. In verse 29, the older son said to his father, All these years I have served you. All these years I have served you. That's not a teenager speaking. You know, I started at 18, and now I've served you since, you know, So my guess is these sons are at least in their 20s and maybe in their 30s. So you've got a father who's got sons who've been in his family for 20 years. For 30 years, they're still dead. The one son says, I've heard all that you've said. I've listened to all your stuff. Split the money and let me get out of here. Okay? And the father realizes the fact that arguing with him, trying to instruct him now at this age, having instructed him for years to years before, would not give the son life. The son wants this the father wants this son to come to know life. He's dead. He wants him to come to repentance and come to life. So he was living for a greater purpose than just his comfort. Notice what the father did not do. The father split the inheritance, gave it to the son. The prodigal took off. He didn't restrict the prodigal from leaving. He didn't follow the prodigal when he left. He didn't try to connect with him through email when he was out in the pig pen. He didn't send checks to the pig pen. You know, let him go. There's a time When older children need to experience the effect of their choice. If they do not want to listen to the information, they can experience the result. As someone said, if they don't want to listen to the rudder and turn, they can run into the rocks. And so the father let him go. Didn't he love him? Sure he loved him. But he did what perhaps every single one of us should constantly do. We should constantly be saying, what can I do that will help this person? Not just do what I feel like doing. Not just do, feel like do what I want to do at the moment, you know. My son comes and says, I'd rather have you dead. Give me some money. I'd rather do something else than split the inheritance with him. But he's thinking in terms of what's best for this kid. What can I do that's best? There's a verse in in, uh, Ephesians that suggests that every one of us ought to live this way. If you've got your Bible and we'll turn there, Ephesians 4.29 is a very interesting verse. Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. What that's saying is I need to put a guard up at my mouth and I need to evaluate what goes out of my mouth. Evaluate it in terms of is it unwholesome 
Or does it meet a need at the moment? Does it minister grace? You've got the chance with your mouth to do the same thing that God has done for you. You've got the chance with your mouth to give people a gift. Grace is a gift, freely given. You can choose words that will give people a gift. The gift may be encouragement. On the other hand, the gift may be judgment, if somebody needs that. The gift may be wisdom. But this verse is saying, you want to think, when you open your mouth, you want to think in terms of, what are these words going to do in this situation? And how can I frame them in this situation so that they minister grace? I think that's what the father was doing. I think the father was living in light of, what can I do for these sons that is going to minister grace that's going to wake them up? So here's another question. Why did the the father overlook the bad attitude of his sons? You would think a father would correct his sons over this. And the answer is, no, he had a higher goal. He's probably corrected these sons for years. You know, after a while, you don't need, children don't need more information. Because it's not an information problem. It's a will problem. As most of you know, we had children. (laughs) I was going to say disobedient children, and that's an oxymoron. (laughs) We had a son who, at the age of 12, decided there's a better way and uh, was picked up for shoplifting at 12, and it went downhill from there. 15, stole my van, drove from Washington, D.C. to Hollywood, California, with two 13-year-old girls. Two months later, stole my van, drove to Connecticut. This was at the age of 15 without a driver's license, so that by the time it came time for him to get a driver's license, he already had 6,000 miles of experience (laughs) driving without one. Okay? In the middle of that time, being completely frustrated over the impossibility of this kid. We got him signed up for Joe Gibbs' home over in Bristol, Virginia, called Youth for Tomorrow. And we were so delighted that he was incarcerated. He was going to be there until he graduated from high school. It was a year and a half, and our family was much more at peace without him because his presence just caused chaos. And uh, so we were so delighted that he was that he was taken care of for a year and a half that we invited my wife's niece to come up and join us. She was 13 and on drugs in Florida, and her mother didn't know what to do with her. So she came up to join our family. We figured, you know, we failed with our son. We'll try another one. And uh, so she joins our family. And probably less than a month after she joins our family, our son runs away from Joe Gibbs' home and uh, is caught by a neighbor in our backyard and says to me, I want to come home. I said, you can't. Marcy's here. No, I'm coming home. We tried to take him back to Joe Gibbs' place, which is a home for runaway boys, and they would not accept him because he ran away. No, that's the truth. They would not accept him. And they basically said, we can't handle this. We can't deal with this kid. So here's this kid coming back to our house with another rebellious kid. And uh, I said to him, okay, I'm going to write a contract. I want to write a contract with you that lists everything I'm expecting you to do and lists what will happen when you don't do it. And he said, okay. And I said, what would you put on the contract? He answered that question in a way that completely surprised me. What would you put on the contract? He wrote everything on the contract that I would have written, and he wrote it in a better way than I would have written it. 
And he wrote what should be done when he disobeys. All of a sudden, I realized the fact that this kid is not suffering from lack of information. You know? He's not ignorant as to what's going on. He knows exactly what's happening. He knows what I, what I want. He knows what the family expects. He knows how he should act. It wasn't a problem of information. It was a problem of will. And that's the case with, these fa- with his father and his sons. The father realizes that the, the sons have enough information. It's not the information issue. It's the will issue. And so the question becomes, what do you do that will get to their will? How do you deal with a will? So, number one, the father is actively engaged in his son's life. Number two, the father is patiently engaged in his son's life. And then number three, quickly, the son, the father, enthusiastically flagged one of the good features of his son's life. Enthusiastically flagged one good feature of his son's life. I find this very interesting. That here's a father who's got two dead sons who've insulted him, who have no interest. One son comes back, and the father makes a mind-boggling, unbelievable response to one thing that his son did. I think you will find that there are ten parts to the father's response. Ten parts to the father's response. And I think these ten parts are a picture of God's response to you and to me. Look at him. It says he saw him when he was very far off. He saw him. He saw who it was. He saw his swine herd's uniform. He saw his filthy hands and feet. He knew instantly how far down he had gone in life. God sees what we cannot see, the heart. Number two, he had compassion on him. He felt for him. What he saw was only pale skin and bones of this son who was starving, probably in rags, and yet he felt love rather than judgment. That's a picture of our God. He has compassion on our troubles, our pain, even when we bring it on ourselves, as this son did. Number three, he ran to him. An embarrassing move in that culture for an older man. God is slow to anger and quick to bless. He doesn't have to stop and meditate on how to deal with penitent prodigals. Number four, he hugged and kissed his son. He hugged and kissed his son before the son took a bath. Both of those verbs are strong. Both of those are strong Greek verbs. The word hug hug means to grab a hold of his neck and fall on his neck. And the word kiss means, it actually has a, a prefix with it, that emphasizes fervently kiss. He not only gave him a peck, he kissed him, you know. He was kissing this son. Think of the contrast. The son probably was afraid to look at his father. Probably didn't know whether he should embrace him or not. The father's falling on his neck and kissing him fervently. You ever seen God in that picture? As stooping from his glorious throne to fall on the neck of a penitent sinner? Kissing him? What an amazing picture. What an amazing statement about God. Have you ever experienced that? God falling on your neck and kissing you. It's almost hard to believe, isn't it? 
It's a picture of God. And then you have these other statements. He commands the finest robe to be put on the sun. He commands a ring, commands sandals for his feet, commands the fattened calf to be grilled, commands everybody to eat and celebrate. And then in verse 24, he states the reason. He makes a statement as to the reason. He says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. What's he doing? I mentioned last week that he's stamping on the the heart of his son, forgiven. He's stamping on the heart of his son, loved. He's stamping on the heart of his son, restored. You ever thought that that's the way God responds to you, to me, when we come to him in humility? I think that's the picture of God. And I think what Jesus Christ is saying here is that repentance causes heaven to erupt in a celebration. And if heaven erupts in a celebration, we ought to have one down here too. That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. He's saying to the Pharisees, you want to join us? Have your children ever repented? To me, it's such an exciting thing as a parent to see your children come to Christ. I had the privilege of leading my youngest daughter to the Lord in the bathroom. And she went out and said to her younger brother, I think she was six, went and said to her younger brother, you know, you need to do this too. So he came in the bathroom and trusted Christ. (laughs) What a privilege, you know? How do you respond when somebody comes to Christ? How do you respond when a child child repents? Do you say, okay, all right, yeah. You notice the father is flagging this event. The father is saying, this is the greatest thing this farm has ever seen. Let's make a big party and a big celebration over this, because we've never seen it before. I think that is very important in the life of a child, even in the life of a 30-year-old. I think it is very important for a father to flag events that are important. Flag repentance. They ought to get excited when children do business with God. They ought to get excited when their children make decisions by themselves without any pressure from outside. Make decisions to follow God, to do his will, to do something. With my grandkids, I have sometimes given away money for moves in a good direction, you know. They'll quote me a verse or two. Or... And I think I have given away as much as a dollar. You know, I've really, I've really splurged on some of them and forked over a dollar. <clears throat> but two weeks ago, our eight-year-old granddaughter... Uh, I found out that she had blown the roof off of uh, the Awana program at our former church in Bowie. She had not only memorized everything in the book, but apparently had memorized everything in the next book and had done this without her parents even knowing it. And they didn't know it until they called her up for this award and, you know, talked about everything that she had done. So I thought that was worth 10 bucks, and I, <laughs> I flagged that one with 10 bucks. I thought that was great. But what he's saying here is that children need to know what is accepted, what is not accepted. It is important to say to children that is not appropriate behavior. It is important to say to children that is great. Keep doing that. Those kinds of things help 
set the boundaries. The danger in this kind of thing is that fathers feel like failures. You know? You feel like a failure. Because you keep saying it, nothing happens. You know? You keep doing it, nothing happens. Or children keep disobeying. And it's, it's important that fathers not get frustrated, not get the feeling of failure. They keep doing this faithfully. Colossians chapter 3 verse 21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You can provoke your children by being too demanding or too exacting or too frustrating. There's a danger of losing respect for your child, losing your temper. And since the child is so much smaller and insignificant, fathers can do damage to children. Don't do it. You must treat your child with love, with kindness, with appreciation, with honor, even when you discipline them. If children can never please their fathers, if they're teased and irritated by repeated condemnation, if they're pushed away by consistent sternness, if other children are pointed out as being better, or if their best efforts can only collect a frown, if they're never greeted with a smile, you're going to frustrate them. You're going to discourage them. And it says, fathers, do not provoke your children. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how strange they are. Andy Telford, who was a pastor for years at Baraka Church in Philadelphia, a large church in Philadelphia, a well-known pastor, just an outstanding Bible teacher for years up and down the East Coast, had a son who completely turned away from the gospel. The son said to me, I would come down every morning and my dad was at a desk at the bottom of the steps in the middle of the entryway of our house studying his Bible. And he said, I rejected it all. Turned away, became a truck driver, wanted nothing to do with it, nothing to do with my dad, nothing to do with the church. At the age of 40, at the age of 40, The Holy Spirit got a hold of him. He woke up, came to Jesus Christ. And by the time I met him, when he was 60, he was a leader of a missions organization. God was using him greatly. You know, sometimes when you say, I've got to wait until my kid gets 40, you know. I remember when our child was disobeying, our eldest was disobeying, we were saying, how long, how long, oh Lord, will this go? Well, he actually woke up and came back to Christ at the age of 21, for which we praise God. And his life has been changed. He actually married an unbelieving girl who knew nothing about the gospel. After he came back to Christ, he led her to the Lord. It was either he leading her to the Lord or she may have led him back to the Lord. I'm not sure, but the response was great. But we have a 40-year-old daughter who never has done anything wrong, never has disobeyed in her life, and now at the age of 40 has come to the conclusion that she is going to divorce her husband. Three kids, beautiful children. She's going to divorce her husband. So these kinds of things come to every family. These kinds of things need a father who says, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to sow seeds. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going, to, I'm going to continually encourage, ask God for wisdom as to how to minister grace in this situation. Because in the middle of all of these difficulties, when people trust God, ask God for wisdom, God works. And God does things that you can't do. And he also does things that you don't expect. So, I would encourage fathers, do not be discouraged. Keep working with your child. God is at work. So, what can you do to encourage your children? I end with these three statements. Let me give you three statements at 1220. Number one. 
Give your child the gift of loving his or her mother. Give your child the gift of loving his or her mother. Children are greatly affected by the interaction between mom and dad. They feel more secure, more loved when they see mom and dad in love with each other. More than money, more than time, more than attention, love for mother is a great gift. Number two, give your child the gift of listening. Listening. Listen to them. You don't have to straighten them out. Just listen to them. Ask questions. Listen to where they are. What they want. Number three, give your child the gift of honor. Grant your child status. Because God says children are important. Jesus is the one who said in Mark 13... Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And you and I, as fathers, have the privilege of working with God in his kingdom, which happens to be at our house. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being assigned a responsibility of working with you. What a privilege. You are the one who is raising these children. You are the one who is preparing a bride for your son. You are the one who is preparing leaders for the world to come. And we have the privilege of being yoked together with you in this enterprise. Would you give us wisdom and strength? Would you encourage every father here? Would you guide every father here? that we might accomplish your will, that we might actually minister grace in our families in a way that will please you. Thank you for this day, for the privilege of remembering what our fathers have done for us. And I pray that we might represent you as God the Father in all that we do and say. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.